You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Proverbs. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn in our Bibles to Proverbs 25, in verse 1 it says, These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. So apparently here, King Hezekiah's men, perhaps some royal scribes, copied or removed from one book or scroll to another more than 100 of Solomon's Proverbs. And so this adds to some of the interesting or fascinating ways in which Holy Scripture was compiled or written. Of course, the first writing of God being not Genesis 1, of course Moses would write uh, the entire Pentateuch, but the first time that God wrote scripture was with his finger on tablets of stone. And then on the other end of the spectrum you have Luke uh, studying and interviewing and compiling records and writing the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts after a careful study and cross-examination of different characters. And now here you have Solomon who had written various proverbs, uh, now gone, and Hezekiah, who is the king far after Solomon was off the throne and dead and gone, uh, having his royal scribes compile, it seems, about a hundred different proverbs that Solomon had written 250 years earlier. Now, so perhaps uh, that's what this is speaking of, or it might just actually be the way that his men grouped many of these Proverbs into units of similar thought. So that's the prescript, though. These are the Proverbs Solomon also wrote, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. It is, verse 2, the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. Now in verse 2 through 7, the subject matter is going to be the different kings and the way that kings should behave and act and operate. And of course, this is important because the Proverbs were written in one sense from a father who was a king to his son, the next generation, who would also serve as a king. Uh, But here in the second verse, in the first of these Proverbs on kings, We're told that it's the glory of God to conceal things, but it's the glory of kings to search things out. In other words, we cannot understand God completely, otherwise we would be God. I mean, he is infinite, so if we could understand him, then we would also be infinite. So it is said that he conceals things. There are certain things that are just mysterious about God. For instance, I do not understand how God's sovereignty coincides with man's free will. Yet I believe that it does and that God knows the answer as to how that occurs. So it's the glory of God to conceal things. But it is the glory of kings, on the other hand, to search things out. In other words, good leaders will try to investigate matters fully and try to determine the best course of action by submitting to what they discover of God's will 
and of God's plan. This to me is beautiful because it seems as if this offers a beautiful test to the hearts of all human beings. A test which demonstrates either humility or pride. And the test is simply this. Will a person seek out what God has concealed? Will they try to know God? Uh, Will they take the evidence that is there and pursue him? Or will they uh, simply feel as if they know all things and refuse to search things out? The next proverb, verse 3, says, As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. In other words, the king's decisions are beyond the knowledge of the people. You know, this is just, in a sense, a simple political fact. We, we are fortunate to live in a system, many of us who are listening to or are engaging in this teaching, where we are able to communicate with our leaders to a degree, and they are able to communicate to us. But the reality, even in a political system as ours is designed, even in a political system like this one, the reality is there is much that our leaders cannot share with us. And just as God hides some of his knowledge from kings, as we saw in verse 2, kings hide some of their knowledge from their subjects. Now, the truth is leaders have to make decisions based on the information at their disposal. And at times they cannot share that information with others. Uh, so they just have to act. Nor do they, practically speaking, have the time to uh, bring everyone up to speed. So it is pride in humanity, though, that makes people think that they could understand everything if only given the chance or that they have a right to know all of the information. But it just really isn't the way the world works. Verse 4, take away the dross from silver and the smith has material for a vessel. Take away from the wicked from the presence of the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Now, Israel, or today, the church, is only as strong as the people who comprise it. You know, in ancient Israel, the, the thing was obvious. If, if, if wickedness is purged from our people, you know, if people behave more righteously, then there will be the establishing of that leader, the establishing of that king. If there are many wicked, then it will be impossible for the throne to be established. You know, perhaps a modern application of this would be to say that our churches are founded by the word of God and hold a high value of God's word. But if we do not tolerate the Bible and we tolerate wicked teaching, then the church will be weakened. The church will not be able to be established. Verse 6, do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Here we have a classic proverb dealing with the conflict between waiting for promotion and self-promotion. You know, one figure does not put himself forward in the king's presence and is invited, hey, come up here, rather than the other figure who does come up there only to be put lower in the presence 
of a noble. Jesus illustrated this in a parable in Luke chapter 14 when he talked about those who were invited and looked for places of honor. And so, you know, as Jesus saw that people wanted the places of honor, uh, he told a parable. And in his parable, he announced, you know, someone's invited to a wedding feast. Do not sit in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so the Christ-like attitude is to be found in the disciples. And Jesus's attitude, which we are to emulate, is one that lowers the self. Jesus lowered himself. And so as we do that, God actually exalts us. It's not that Jesus is giving a tip on how to become you know, well-received and popular in the eyes of others. He's saying, if you lower yourself, God himself will exalt you. And this is important because we are living in an age so often of self-promotion. So often when you'll meet a new person, they'll right off the bat begin telling you all of their credentials, all of what they do, what makes them valuable, what makes them important. But it's better to just simply carry a humble spirit and allow the Lord to exalt you. Now the end of verse 7 says, what your eyes have seen, and on into verse 8, do not hastily bring into court, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? This speaks of cautious testimony. Uh, someone should not be too eager to testify, lest you be put to shame publicly. Argue, verse 9, your case with your neighbor himself, and do not reveal another's secret, lest he who hears you bring shame upon you, and your ill repute have no end. Here, the importance and wisdom of one-on-one -on -one interactions in the settling of disputes is highlighted. Go to them one-on-one, -on -one, he's saying. Don't spread it about, lest he hear you and bring shame upon you. But the reality is, so often people are inept at this. Uh, so often, we want to privately tear down other people, which is not private at all, but it's in front of other people, and we run from the one-on-one -on -one kind of conflict. It is better to represent others well, privately and personally before others, and one-on-one -on -one deal with the individual problem. And so don't let this shame come upon your life. Uh, be a person who, when someone wrongs you, you go to them one-on-one. -on -one. You might just be surprised to learn their perspective and what was really happening in their hearts in the moment. And God may give you grace to not only forgive, but also understand where they were coming from and perhaps their wrong wasn't all that wrong in the first place. Verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Now, this is a metaphor that is unclear to us in our modern age. We really, in a sense, don't even know whether we're dealing with fruit because it is translated as apple here, but it's an uncertain translation 
or or some kind of handmade you know artistic thing at an apple of gold in a setting of silver so we really don't it's kind of a dead metaphor to us but what we can glean from this in verse 11 is that there is something valuable something fitting and something beautiful that is being described apples of gold in a setting of silver and what is being said here is that a word fitly spoken you know at the right time in the right moment in the right way those words are of high value and if you just think about this all throughout life if you are a parent and you have the right word at the right time at the right moment in the right way it is such good medicine and such great such a great aid to your children in discipleship when you're mentoring someone one-on-one the right word at the right time with the right spirit and the right heart it is so valuable so helpful when you're teaching or communicating to other people or in leadership you know in, in a million different contexts a word fitly spoken is of extreme value and beauty and so it behooves us to go to the Lord and say, God, would you help me with my words? Would you make my words more intelligent, more fitting, more understandable? And also, would you strengthen me by your spirit to be able to have the insightful thing to share at the right moment in time? Now, he goes on in verse 12 and announces, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Now, this verse presents the ideal combination of the wise teacher and the willing student. Now, the reason why it's the ideal combination is because you have a wise reprover combined with a listening ear. And he announces this is a beautiful group uh, working together like a gold ring or an ornament of gold. You know, the reality, what he's announcing is, and when you've got both of those things, a wise reprover and a listening ear, when those two things are working together, it is a beautiful ornament and, you know, is greatly effective. It really takes both to get the job done. Uh, it's one thing to have someone with wisdom. It's another thing to have someone li- willing to listen and hear. But when both of those come together, You know, for years here in the church that I pastor, our pastoral group and team has prayed for the body of believers that gathers here that their hearts would be receptive to the Word of God. Because it's one thing to declare the Word of God, but it's another thing to have an ear that listens to the Word of God. But when both are in operation, great things happen in the lives of God's people. Verse 13, like the cold of snow in the time of harvest, is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. Now this speaks of ultimate refreshments, uh, snow and, and harvest. You know, for them, that would be a rarity, that cold snow would come in the midst of the hot harvest months. But you can imagine someone out there working and gleaning and doing all their, you know, outside toiling under the hot sun and then a refreshing snow comes how refreshing would that be for that worker and uh, this is what they're announcing they're saying look that's what it's like when a 
faithful messenger does his work, he refreshes the souls of those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his master. I know for me in the fellowship that God has called me to pastor, this is how I hope to operate for them. They've sent me. I hope to refresh them as they have sent me. Like clouds, verse 14, and wind without rain, as a man who boasts of a gift, he does not give. Now, making claims, in other words, in this proverb, or boasts that you cannot deliver on makes you like clouds and wind without rain. In other words, there's no real benefit to you. When you look up and you see a cloud that's there in the sky or wind, but there's no rain, there's no real benefit to the earth below. In other words, this person huffs and puffs, but substance is lacking from their lives. They really are not able to be helpful. They're really not able to be a blessing. Like it says in Jude, Jude verse 12, they are hidden reefs at your love feast. They feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. Now that's the idea here is that this person is boasting, but they're like clouds and wind without rain. Ananias from Acts 5 comes to mind along with his wife Sapphira, who, you know, they boasted that they gave a financial gift to the church of X amount. And they did give a financial gift, just not as much as they were announcing and advertising that they had given. Peter, of course, communicated to them that they did not have to, they were under no obligation to give anything. But because they gave one thing and advertised that they'd given a larger amount, uh, their lives were taken. That first act of hypocrisy, God needed to judge it so that every generation of the church thereafter would understand that that kind of hypocrisy is an answer. To boast of a gift that you do not give is hypocrisy and is dangerous for a body of believers. Verse 15, with patience a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. In other words, patience and a soft tongue are powerful ways to accomplish difficult things. You know, the, the truth of the matter is that it is hard to lead, it is hard to move, it is hard to do things in life. But if you have a soft tongue, you will find that people will be willing to help you uh, as you seek them for their help and their support throughout the storms and difficulties of life. Verse 16, if you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. This speaks of moderation in all things. You know, in the NASB version of the Bible, one of the descriptions of the requirements for pastors in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 is the word temperate. They must be temperate in all things. This speaks of a discipline, a self-control. And uh, the reality, I think, is that if a person is able to have temperance or moderation in their eating, then they'll more than likely be able to have temperance in other areas uh, that are more important in their lives. And so very practical instruction there in verse 16. Verse 17, let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. This is a uh, humorous proverb in a sense. It, literally, the admonition is picturesque. It's 
make your foot precious in your neighbor's house. In other words, do not overdo your visiting. Do not overstay your welcome. And this is one of those delicate, personable skills that a human being gets. You know, the ability to understand, okay, I think that my welcome has been worn out. I'm going to only be here as much as is a blessing. I'd rather have them wanting more and depart than to wear out my welcome and wish that I had just left the scene. So, you know, an, a, a very interesting proverb here uh, because you want to make sure that you're a person that is likable. It's just a very fascinating proverb here, just being, t just helping us understand how to be a person who others get along with because, man, we just can't get forward in life unless others get along with us. You're going to have to do life with others, so make sure you treat them well. Verse 18, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. Now, again and again, all throughout the Proverbs, a false witness is spoken of. I mean, this is a major concern for the biblical author because, well, he's a king over Israel, writing to his son, and the nation is really, in a sense, going to rise and fall based on the veracity of their witnesses. In other words, if throughout the courts of the land, false witness is being distributed, then what that means is that all throughout the land, there is a comfort level with deceit that is absolutely cancerous. So false witnesses, in a sense, are deadly in society. Here, they're compared to a club, a sword, and a sharp arrow, all of them deadly weapons. And obviously, we live in a society where through the justice system, there have been times where people have been wrongly accused because of a false witness. And it was a deadly weapon in their lives. Trusting, verse 19, in a treacherous man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. This speaks of unfaithfulness, you know. I often talk to young people about their service of the Lord, you know, and as, as, as they advance and grow in their Christian maturity, one of the marks that I encourage them to shoot for is reliability. Make sure that you are a person that your yes means yes and your no means no, that, that when you announce that you'll be there, you announce that you're going to be able to help, make sure that, you know, you follow through because the moment that that trustworthiness begins to slip and you begin to operate in an unfaithful kind of way is the moment that your name will not be called for that opportunity. You, you have become like that bad tooth or that foot that slips. We want to be a reliable people. And of course, we need the help of the Holy Spirit and the strength of Christ to become that way. Verse 20. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Now, uh, the reference here, vinegar on soda, is a reference to sodium carbonate, which was natural down in Egypt. Apparently, it would be neutralized by vinegar, so it would make the soda uh, nothing. In other words, to add vinegar would make it counter productive. So the idea here is that singing songs to a heavy heart is counterproductive. 
uh, it is going to, you know, offer sort of a a nothingness kind of experience. And so being un, unsympathetic or insensitive does harm and does not do good in the life of the person that you have targeted. And so just this is teaching us to have a sensitivity to the way that people are feeling and, and what they're going through in life. Do not sing songs to a heavy heart. You know, find out if their heart is heavy, then what can you do? Be, be a listening ear. Be a sympathetic listener. Speak words of encouragement. But do not act as if all is well. Their hearts are heavy. This speaks to us of being compassionate people as Christ. Verse 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Now, Paul the Apostle uses this expression in Romans chapter 12, verse 20. And the question is, what does this mean? What does it mean to heap burning coals on the head of this person that, you know, they're your enemy and so give them bread to eat if they're hungry, give them water to drink if they're thirsty, and when you do that, you're going to heap burning coals on their head. Now, some people think that this means the fire of God's wrath and judgment will come upon them. That seems to be contradictory to the whole point of the thing, you know, especially as you look at it in Romans chapter 12. The idea there is of being kind to your enemy. You're not trying to find a roundabout way to bring vengeance upon them. Other people think that this is the fire of shame or embarrassment. Some people think this is the fire of blessing, as in when a neighbor would visit you and say, hey, I need fire, and they'd have a little pot on their head, and you'd put the uh, coals from your fire into their pot, and they'd put it on their head, and so it'd be a good thing, burning coals on the head. And then still others think that this was an Egyptian ritual where the penitent would carry coals on their head as a sign. And uh, so perhaps the person, through your kindness, will repent of their sin. It is slightly unclear the exact meaning of the proverb. But what is clear is that as we bless our enemy, which is hard to do, the blessing of our enemy will lead often to great progress in those relationships. Or if I could say it another way, to bless our enemy often leads to great progress amongst humanity. Uh, I think of Jackie Robinson, the first African-American baseball player to break the color barrier in the major leagues. And his tactic for a few years was really just that, to turn the other cheek, to return blessing for the curses that he'd received. And over time, it wore his enemy down. Verse 23, The north wind brings forth rain, and a backbiting tongue angry looks. In other words, when you have a backbiting tongue, you're gossiping, you're sly, you have to prepare yourself for the consequence that will come, and the consequence will be, quite often, angry looks. It is better, verse 24, to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Now, this is fascinating because over and over again through the Proverbs, Proverbs 19, Proverbs 21, 
a couple of times, Proverbs 27 a couple of times, there is mention of this quarrelsome woman, this quarrelsome wife. And so again, the father is warning his son. Like cold water, verse 25, to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Uh, This uh, is a great missionary verse for us, uh, reminding us of Romans 10, verse 15, uh, that says, And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, quoting quoting from Isaiah 52, verse 7, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So the idea here is that, man, as we bring the gospel to far countries, it is like cold water to a thirsty soul. Like a muddied spring, verse 26, or a polluted fountain, is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. In other words, don't let your spring become muddied or your fountain become polluted. Uh, One of the greatest hindrances to the work of the gospel are carnal believers, preaching one thing but living another way. Don't let that happen in your life. It is not good, verse 27, to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. In other words, to seek your own glory is bad for you, much like eating too much honey is bad for you. It tastes good to hear the praises of others, but in the end, you will be sick. You weren't designed for that. You're not designed to receive glory. God is designed for glory, to receive glory, to receive the praise of man. A man, verse 28, without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In other words, if you do not have self-control, you will have a defenseless life. Uh, In other words, you will not be able to defend yourself against the myriad of temptations that are coming if you do not have self-control. Fortunately, with Jesus, he can change and transform God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.